Good morning. Scott Luton here with you on this edition of This Week in Business History. Welcome to today's show. On this program, which is part of the Supply Chain Now family of programming, we take a look back at the upcoming week, and then we share some of the most relevant events and milestones from years past. Of course, mostly business-focused, with a little dab of global supply chain, and occasionally, we might just throw in a good story outside of our primary realm. So I invite you to join me on this look back in history to identify some of the most significant leaders, companies, innovations, and perhaps lessons learned in our collective business journey. Now, let's dive in to this week in business history. Hello, and thanks for joining us. I'm Kelly Barner, owner of Buyer's Meeting Point and the host of Dial P for Procurement here on Supply Chain Now. You can join me on the third Tuesday of each month for a video live stream that runs from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern as I bring together the leading minds in corporate spend management and do my best to blur the lines between procurement and supply chain. I'm guest hosting this edition of This Week in Business History, so thanks so much for listening. In this week's show, we'll be remembering a number of key stories, innovations, inventions, and firsts that took place between June 7th and the 13th. Now, if you work in manufacturing today, you're probably familiar with the concept of Industry 4.0. Industry 4.0 is combining traditional manufacturing practices with automation and smart technologies, such as machine-to-machine communication at scale and the Internet of Things. These capabilities are all brought together to achieve greater efficiencies and resolve issues with minimal human intervention. The ultimate goal is what has been termed a smart factory, a highly efficient automated production environment with low levels of human involvement and a very mature integration with the supply chain. It sounds wonderful, I suppose, if a little cold, but if Industry 4.0 is what's pulling us forward, what was going on during the phases of Industry 1.0, 2.0, and 3.0? Well, I'm glad you asked, because the roots of all that is the focus of our main story in this week's podcast. The dawn of the industrial age is roughly dated to the years 1760 to 1840. Interestingly, those years almost perfectly line up with the birth and death of Samuel Slater, who was born on June 9, 1768. He was called the father of the American Industrial Revolution by Andrew Jackson and father of the American factory system. Of course, those names were granted by Americans. In England, he was known as Slater the Traitor. Definitely less flattering, but was it deserved? Samuel Slater grew up in the English countryside, apprenticing in a cotton mill. At the time, the British knew they were ahead in terms of industrial production and naturally wanted to protect their advantage. While Slater didn't literally steal the blueprints and designs, he did commit as much as he possibly could to memory before departing for the U.S. 
where he knew there was enormous demand for building similar machines and handsome rewards waiting for anyone who managed to succeed. You can certainly understand the frustration among the people in Derbyshire, England. They, probably correctly, felt that even if Slater didn't break the law by stealing the designs, he didn't respect the spirit of it either. He made contact with a Rhode Island industrialist named Moses Brown, who was struggling with his water-powered Arkwright spinning wheel for manufacturing cloth. Samuel Slater made him something of an offer he couldn't refuse. Slater would get the machine and the mill running, or Brown could throw him and the machine off the bridge into the Blackstone River. True to his word and living up to his sense of self-worth, Slater had the machinery operational by the end of 1790. He would go on to grow his personal factory ownership hiring predominantly his own family members for management positions. Although Slater's willingness to skirt the rules or steal the designs, depending on your point of view, did set him up for success, his career would go on to include additional controversy. His first mill employees were children between the ages of seven and 12. Now it was not an uncommon practice at the time, and although he did watch over them personally, we certainly wouldn't accept that today. Workers back then were hard to find, and in some cases, mills were purposefully built in areas populated by families as they provided a ready source of affordable labor. At the time, about half the mill workers in Rhode Island were children, working long days in poor conditions for less than a dollar a week. Slater was also associated with the first factory strike in U.S. history. The rules for workers were oppressive and the working conditions were awful. Workers at the time were pushing for a 10-hour workday as an improvement over what they were doing. In 1824, Slater and the other mill owners near Pawtucket, Rhode Island, proposed a 25% wage cut for women workers in the mills between the ages of 15 and 30. For the time, they felt that the wages they were paying these women were exorbitant. And there's your strike, although they were called turnouts at the time. Over 100 women, along with members of the community, blocked the entrance to Samuel Slater's mill. The unrest spread and 500 workers from a total of eight mills walked off the job. They verbally and physically harassed the mill owners at their homes. On the final day of the strike, one of the mills burned down in a fire that was probably set by a striker. And suddenly, compromise. Now the details of the agreement have been lost to history. And nine days after the strike began, everyone went back to work. Although he did his best to keep the knowledge in the family, Samuel Slater's contributions to American industrialization eventually spread far and wide, earning him those father titles. Our subsequent progression through Industry 2.0 and 3.0 can't be denied, and they wouldn't have happened in America as quickly without them, even if he had to steal them. In our next story, we come a little closer to the world of supply chain, ocean freight, to mark a milestone for the Panama Canal. On June 7, 1914, an old French crane boat called the Alexandre Lavalle became the first self-propelled vessel to cross the Panama Canal to the Pacific Ocean. 
the Alexandra Lavallee moved under its own power through the waterway during the final stages of canal construction, which would end later that year. Now, if you happen to be an expert on the Panama Canal or decide to look this up, don't get upset with me that the first ship to pass through the canal was the SS Ancon cargo ship on August 15, 1914. That was the first official ship to pass through. It traveled through the canal without incident and of course with a great deal of press coverage and global excitement. Of course, that isn't the whole story either. The SS Ancon wasn't the first ship to pass through the canal. It was actually just a staged press op. On August 3rd, 1914, almost two weeks earlier, the SS Cristobal sailed from Balboa on the Pacific coast in just 12 hours. The trip was a test run planned by the chief engineer to make sure that the transit could easily be made without the pressure of knowing that the eyes of the world were on him. The funny thing is that it was about the worst kept secret in maritime logistics. 200 guests were on board the SS Cristobal for the trip. If you didn't already know this was business history, you would know it now. It would be impossible to pull off such a stunt in the age of social media. All it would take was one indiscreet guest sharing a selfie they took in the middle of the canal and posting it to their Facebook page, and the jig would be up. Back then, they just told everyone that the SS Ancon was first, and that was that. Next up is a U.S. Post Office ruling dated to June 13, 1920. I would like to dedicate this story to all of the parents out there who are now staring down the barrel of summer vacation. In January of 1913, the post office began a nationwide parcel post service. This made it possible to ship things that didn't fit into flat envelopes. The scope was pretty broad and undefined in those early days. You could pretty much post anything that wasn't dangerous and didn't threaten the other parcels. So it didn't take people long to figure out that people might fit the bill. There are all kinds of crazy stories from those early days. Babies and grandchildren were being mailed from one family member to another, with rates being based on either the weight of the child or the closest category the person at the mail counter could come up with. For instance, a little girl named May Piersdorf was mailed to her grandparents. Because she was under the 50-pound weight limit, she was sent for 53 cents, the going rate for chickens. So her parents pinned it to her jacket and into the mail she went. But that was never going to last. So on June 13th, the Washington Herald ran a headline that read, Can't Mail Kitties, Dangerous Animals. The post office stopped the posting of children not by saying, Hello everyone, we are a mail agency, not a travel agency, but by declaring that children are not, quote, harmless animals. And that's something parents know full well. Before we wrap this week's episode, let's recognize a few historically significant birthdays. On June 8, 1867, American architect Frank Lloyd Wright was born in Richland Center, Wisconsin. He would go on to design about 1,000 structures, most of which exhibit his trademark organic architecture style that brought buildings into communion with the land and nature around them. On June 9, 1915, Les Paul, 
an American guitarist and electric guitar innovator was born. A self-taught musician, he is most closely associated with the solid body electric guitar which now serves as the basis for the Gibson Les Paul model. Undersea explorer Jacques Cousteau was born on June 11, 1910 in France. Best known for his Emmy award-winning television series, The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau, which ran in the U.S. from 1968 to 1976, he is also associated with a number of undersea innovations, including the Aqualung, the first submersible scooters, a mini submarine, which for some reason he nicknamed Denise, and many underwater lighting systems and cameras that are still used today. Last but not least, American football coach Vince Lombardi was born on June 11, 1913 in Brooklyn, New York. For his contributions to coaching and football, the Super Bowl trophy was named in his honor after his death in 1970. He was also well known for inspirational quotes, including, the greatest accomplishment is not in never failing, but in rising again after you fall. Those are wise words to live by indeed. Thank you, coach. Well, that just about wraps up this edition of This Week in Business History. Big thanks to you for tuning into the show each week. Don't forget to check out the wide variety of industry thought leadership available at supplychainnow.com. As a friendly reminder, you can find This Week in Business History wherever you get your podcast from. And be sure to tell us what you think. We would love to earn your review. And we encourage you to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. On behalf of the entire team here at This Week in Business History and Supply Chain Now, this is Kelly Barner wishing all of our listeners nothing but the best. On that note, we'll see you next time here on This Week in Business History.